Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today we are going to talk with my dear friend, Amberly Johnson. Hi, Amberly. Hi. Michelle, I have to tell you, I've known Amberly now for several years. She lives on the same street as I do. We have a lot of children the same age. She has a lot of children and I have a lot of children. And collectively, I think we have a dozen. <laughs> she and I go to church together. We serve a lot together with some of the flag missions that our Major Brent Taylor Foundation does. She and her husband are just some of the kindest, greatest people you will ever meet. Uh, they literally would give you the shirt off their backs. And it was a while into knowing Amberly and her family before I knew that she had this tragedy, a story with her brother, with a loss, and that's what she has graciously um, been willing to share with us today. So Amberly, thank you, first of all, for being you, you and Josh both and your sweet boys. Thanks for keeping me and my family afloat these last many years. And thank you for being willing to share this tender story about losing your brother. I know it's not an easy topic and it can be difficult to, to be that open, but we appreciate it. And I would love if you could, for my sake and the rest of us listening, can you give us a background, your family, you and Josh, but also your family growing up, you and your brother, your other siblings, your parents. I know you guys are a wonderful family that is just uplifting and smiling wherever I see any of you. I saw your sister yesterday. I'm like, that is for sure Amberly's sister. <laughs> so I would love to learn a little about your, uh, the family of your childhood and especially your brother. So if you don't mind, just introduce us a little. Yeah, so I am the oldest of five kids, and my youngest sister that you mentioned, she is only six years younger than me. So that is fast. (laughs) Six years, (laughs) yes. And my dad was in the Air Force, and so we moved around a bit. I was born here in Utah, and then we moved to the Philippines, where my next sister and my brother Weston was born. And then we lived in Nebraska for a while, where my last two siblings were born. And then he took an early retirement, and we moved back to Utah. My family is all still really close. Growing up, I would say Weston and I, he was the sibling I was closest to, although we had a couple of rocky years when I was the babysitter and he was the pesky younger brother. But <laughs> so wait a sec. We really there's, there's hope for Megan and Jacob, maybe, my kids, because <laughs> I look at those for two sure. and think, I hope you two grow up to like each other, because I'm not sure you do right now. So he's your first, he's third. Did I catch that right? He's the third child? Yes. Okay. And tell us, tell us a little more about that relationship you two had, and what was it that made you closest siblings when you didn't have to babysit him? <laughs> right. He got into skateboarding. I was friends with a lot of skateboarders and rollerbladers. We got into snowboarding. And I think that we both just really liked to talk. We would get into some deep philosophical conversations sometimes. Um, Hanging out late at night, we'd get the giggle fits in the kitchen while everyone else was trying to sleep. And I'd see how high I could spike his hair. We just, we had a lot of fun. I hope you have pictures of that because we want to see it. Because this would have been like 90s style, right? So that's some good spiked hair. (laughs) Early 2000s. I love it. Tell us a little bit for a second before we get into uh, more of your story with Weston. Tell us about your family, maybe a little how you met Josh, your kids, and a little jump to today, and then we'll go back to these these previous years, just so we kind of get to know you a little bit better, too. Sure. So Josh and I got married in 2004, so it's been a few years. We have five kids as well, all boys, and I never imagined that I would have all boys, but they're a lot of fun. My oldest is 14 and my youngest is four with the middle three being kind of scrunched together. And we like to be active. We love doing flag missions. 
I am a marriage and family therapist and work part-time and, yeah, home with the kids when I can be. I love it. I love it. So let's tell the story about Weston. We know that you two grew up together. You like to laugh together, snowboard, rollerblade. I I just want to picture you two on, like, rollerblades because I think that would be so fun. Side note, my daughter just bought Mm -hmm. a pair of roller skates it's 2022. She's 16 and she just bought some roller skates. So this is like retro. So tell us, give us the story um, from when you guys were younger and then it tell tell us a little of your journey with Weston and why we're sharing this story today. Um, so, sorry. So Weston, he was always a deep thinker. He struggled some when he was younger with maybe not wanting to go to school and arguing about that. But overall, he was a good student. He graduated and served an LDS mission in Brazil and came home from his mission a little bit early due to some health problems. He was having reoccurring ear infections, and they gave him some medication there in Brazil that he was allergic to. So he ended up coming home just a few months early. At the time, I was married and expecting my first child. And he came home really with this new outgoing personality that happy to meet people. He dated a lot and ended up getting married about a year and a half after that. So he was married in the fall of 2010 and him and his wife were expecting when he passed away. He passed away May 5th, 2011 by suicide. And that also happened to be my husband's 30th birthday. So that day we were kind of just celebrating. We were having extended family over for cake and ice cream that night and we were planning on Weston and his wife Tara coming but they ended up not making it so me and my little family we were celebrating my husband's birthday and went to bed that night my phone I always silence my phone at night otherwise I don't sleep well and so I actually didn't get news of his passing until the next morning and My parents wanted to tell us all in person, and so all I would say was that something had happened, and they wanted us to come over as soon as possible, my husband and I. So I had two little boys at the time, and so my grandma came over to sit with them, and she said, well, you might want to, we were kind of deciding, well, like, how long will this be? Should I take my 11-month-old with me, leave him here with you? She said, you just might want to hold on to him. So I went to my parents' house and I knew it was Weston. I I don't know why, but I just knew. And I knew that he had died. And I thought maybe a car wreck or something. I, I didn't know what to expect. But so I um, went to my parents' house and they explained that he had taken his own life the night before. And his wife wasn't there at the time she had, they had met with her and talked to her and she was up in Huntsville with her parents by that time. And she was expecting at the time their little boy was born the following October. And I just remember being in a day of my whole family ended up coming over my siblings except for my youngest sister was serving a mission in the Philippines at the time. And so we called her on the phone and her mission president helped give her the news. That was back before missionaries could talk as frequently as they do now. And so she had special permission to call. And at first my mom was really hesitant to tell anyone that he had taking his own life. And there were a couple of reasons for that. There's there's a lot that goes with that. And I think she was still kind of trying to wrap her head around it, probably still in some shock. And 
she was really concerned about kind of putting that burden on others. We felt a lot of peace and were very sustained during those first few days that week. I just feel like we were almost cushioned. And she was really concerned about people having the burden of knowing that he took his own life without that added measure of peace that it seemed we were gifted as a family. That is so beautiful Mm -hmm. and so heartbreaking. I, you know, unfortunately, many of us are not strangers to loss by suicide. We live in a world where it seems to be more and more common. Um, I would say even a decade ago, though, when you lost your brother, that was still a very different dynamic. The stigma, we don't talk about it much as a culture. I appreciate your being willing to share this with us. I appreciate you saying that you as a family felt that peace. That's what I would hope and pray every family during any type of loss would feel that sustaining peace, particularly those first few days when you are in shock and you're in fog and you're in a in a bubble. Let's take a break for a minute and come back. I'd love to hear a little more if you know what led your brother to that point. It sounds to me like it wasn't expected. You didn't get the news and just immediately default to, yes, he took his own life. You thought maybe a car accident or something else. So when we come back, if you're willing, we'd love to hear a little bit more of what you know of maybe what led him to that point in his life. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Amberly, can you share with us what you do know or maybe what thoughts or conversations you and your family have had in the past um, 10 or 11 years do you know what led your brother to that point? It sounds like his dying by suicide was a surprise to all of you. I know for some of us, you know, my father, for example, died by suicide. It was not a surprise. It was still devastating, but everyone had been trying to help avoid that for a very long time. When my husband's brother died by suicide, it was a total shock. No one, not one of us ever saw that coming. So it sounds like your family was also caught off guard by the time and manner of your yeah. brother's death. So... I was married and my brother was married. And so we didn't live in the same house. We lived close. We were both in the Ogden area. And so I saw him from time to time, but not on a really regular basis, not every week, let alone every day. And I knew that he had been having some struggles, but I didn't realize the extent of the depression that he was in at the time. He always had, I don't know exactly how to explain it. He was always a very deep thinker and also had this very idealistic personality that he wanted to, he was working on a machine so that he could bioengineer his own fuel. He played three instruments, could do a backflip standing. He was a very talented and very high-achieving person. And from what some things that his wife has shared with us since, he was struggling with depression. I didn't know at the time, and being a licensed counselor, that's been hard for me to have not known that he was struggling so much. My mom did have a little bit more insight into the struggles that he was having, and she also knew that he was pretty determined to handle them his own way. He wasn't open to a lot of ideas or suggestions. He was very into healing by food and was very conscious of what he ate and worked to eat a lot of healing plants and grew a lot of healing plants. And wasn't interested in therapy or 
traditional medication. And so... So when you... My mom had some insight. Um, His wife knew that he was struggling, but she didn't think that this was something that he was planning to do or go through with. So even she didn't know, she, she didn't know that he was struggling. It wasn't like the two of them had been trying to work through it. This was even a surprise to her. I think that they had been trying, they were pretty newly married. She was, and I definitely don't want to speak for her, but from my understanding, from my story, she tried to know what to do and was, maybe feeling a lot of responsibility as a new wife to help him feel better, but not really knowing how to do that and right. not knowing well, the they're young. of his struggle. Very young. Right. Cause, yeah. Cause your brother was how old? He was just shy of 25. He yeah. would have been yeah, That's incredibly young. Month. And so how old was his wife? Maybe. Um, so a few years younger than that. I feel yeah. that. Sorry, Tara. Yeah. I don't know. But, but young. Yeah. But, well, but young. I mean, you're yeah. in your 20s and I'll say or even late teens. With various family members on both my husband's and my side of the family, we have lived with family members who we have known they've struggled. They have openly struggled and we still haven't known what to do for them. And so right. I, my heart breaks for, for your sister-in-law to think she's, she is young, like Michelle said, but also Mental illness is is such a, it's so complicated that it's not just like looking at someone saying, oh, you have a broken bone. You need a cast. Let's go get a cast. You know, that that feels like a very logical, predictable solution. I just more was wondering if your sister-in-law had had seen this coming and, you know, maybe saw, oh, it's just an eventuality or if it also had caught her off guard. It sounds like she also was surprised at the extent of your brother's struggles and my heart just breaks for all of you. I'm so sorry. I think, I think so. And, and I think that of course you try to make sense of it after the fact, right? You, you try to, you try to, you you try to put the clues together. You know, what's interesting about death and you're a therapist, so maybe you have insight to this, but I feel like with all of the losses that I've had in my lifetime, when I was younger and I, I lost some like uh, people that I went to church with, older people, you expect them to die. Sure. Like you even talk about like they aren't going to be here very much yeah. longer. Mm-hmm. When it happens, your brain has a hard moment accepting that they're no longer present on this earth. Like it, there's like a default like where your brain is like, no, no, that can't be right. Like there's yeah. a momentary denial. And then, then it comes to acceptance and then you realize they're really gone and you go through the funeral and that process and and it's a little bit of a process. And those are for people that are removed. When it happens to you with someone that's close, it's so challenging. When my sister lost her husband, he had cancer also. I remember she called me and I am horrified. I think about this all the time. I've thought about it since the moment that I did it and now being a widow, (laughs) I'm appalled at myself. But when my sister called me, she said, Jeff passed away. And I said, what? No, that can't be right. I immediately told her that her husband didn't die. That was my response. (laughs) And yeah, and I think that there's just such a rejection from our, our brains on like how to process that. So then in the turn, like your close family member, your family members, all of these people surrounding your brother, are trying to make sense of something that you're not prepared for. It wasn't cancer. He wasn't sick. It wasn't like everyone was aware of exactly what was going on. So then your brain starts to go backwards and recreate and draw connections to things that may or may not even be true. Right. And my other brother, his name is Stephen, he told me once, he said, hindsight's 50-50 and we always say like hindsight's twenty twenty, and we look back and think well if I could have done this or I could have mm-hmm. done this but I've I've loved that ever since he told me that hindsight's 50-50 you you don't know what you don't know and you it, it's true it, it just sucks. I love that it doesn't make sense and and there's no making sense of it and we are 
I feel close to my sister-in-law, um, my husband's widow, and I've really appreciated the effort that she's put into continuing that relationship because it's been a lot longer without him than it was with him. That's for yeah, sure. So much they were married longer. less than a year. <sighs> and she has asked that we don't really speculate or try to explain, especially explain away the mm, choice wow. that he made. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. And that's been that's been interesting because I feel like that is actually one of the hardest parts because I have my personal, I guess, ideas of what he might have been thinking, and they bring me comfort and peace, but I can't put those out as truth and right. and I definitely can't be her truth or my mom's truth. And so I actually appreciate I that she like, has that <laughs> response to it to this that she's saying please hold the space that we just don't know. Yeah. We yeah. so often want to tie these things up in little nice packages and, and then once we do that, we place them on the shelf, right? That's how we accept and move on in a way. And she's saying there's not really any sense of this. There's not a pretty bow for this. And there's not a pretty bow. And I don't want to just put him away. I'm sure she's staying connected to the family because she has his child. She wants him to know his family. And I'm sure she had this great sense of love for this man and so for her, it sounds to me like she's okay with it not being like resolved to people's satisfaction so that they can just have peace and move on. Not that they can't find their own peace, but right. but just don't make it so simple. It's I, never that simple. Amberly, I it's love complicated. What you, I love what your brother said. <laughs> I love that hindsight's fifty fifty. We are so quick to say I coulda, woulda, shoulda, and if only I had known. When in reality, you don't know that. I, I do that sometimes with my son, who's 14, and, and I'll sometimes say things like, well, would you do this if your father were alive? Would you? And I think that, man, if Brent were here, raising kids would be so easy. Well, hindsight's 50-50. Maybe not. And mm-hmm. I asked my son that one time. Right. I said, would you, would you have done that if dad were still alive? And he looked at me and said, I don't know. And I thought, that's a very honest answer. We sometimes yeah. do want to kind of blame everything or assign everything. Amberly, I'd love to hear more. Walk us through, you've told us that night, that morning when you found out your brother had passed, walk us through those first few weeks, hours, days, months, the the funeral, that process that Michelle just mentioned where you have to kind of accept that reality that your brother's no longer here. You've got a sweet wife with a baby not yet born. Can you tell us what that journey was like for you and your family for those first little while? Yeah, and I'm going to focus on... My space as a sibling, and particularly I'm the oldest sister, and and I felt yeah. a lot of responsibility in that. So, like I mentioned, it was my husband's 30th birthday, and I had actually planned him this big surprise party for May 6th. And so I didn't know how to cancel that, but I definitely wasn't going. And so he actually went to his own surprise party without me, oh. and... He had to break the news. Some of our close friends had had found out by then. But so he, I appreciate that he was willing to do that and to kind of be that go-between because I definitely wasn't ready to do that, to answer people's questions. However innocent or sincere they were, I did not want to answer any questions. And... So I spent the night with my siblings in my parents' living room that next night, and we just, we were together. My brother um, was the one to find our brother, and my heart was breaking for him. He, there's three of us girls, and then there was just the two boys, and they were in the middle and 16 months apart, very close in age, and... And so I wanted to rescue him. My mom, of course, both of my parents, but I think a mom suffers, I guess, maybe more visibly (laughs) than our dads a lot of times. And so I just know that I I felt the need to protect her. And then my sister-in-law. 
not only had she lost her husband, but I think that there was a lot of betrayal. I felt betrayal on her behalf. Like, how could you do this? How could you leave? And, and I don't blame, I don't, because I have a different perspective now, but I felt the injustice of that and wanted to make up for that and be there for her and, and I failed miserably in that, and I still am failing, I'm sure, but I still have that desire to be there for her and for my nephew. But I love them dearly, and um, I'm so grateful for them and their presence in my life. But I just remember feeling like I needed to know what gift Weston wanted me to get her. And it just came to mind that just a really, really soft baby blanket. And so I just felt like I had to get that that special gift that was from Weston and I I did and I don't know if you know I don't know how that landed for her how that was received but but I did feel just a strong desire to keep everyone afloat and that wasn't something that I was honestly able to do but I think that as I've talked to other siblings that have lost, I think that that's a big part of it. My best friend actually lost her sister just over a month before I lost my brother. And so she she talked about experiencing that. But then she was there trying to do that for me as well. She was right there by my side for the funeral, spending all day with us, trying to comfort me in that in a way that I completely missed doing for her and didn't even realize that I wasn't there for her in that way until a month and a half later, I experienced a loss similar to her and realized what that means to be there for someone in that time. It's incredible how your own loss can help you understand how to help someone else in their loss. Emberly, you said a few things that I wrote down that really have resonated with me you mentioned feeling like you needed to rescue your brother who had found your other brother to protect your mom and and then of course be there to to make right this injustice your sister-in-law had faced I think that is a beautiful and heavy weight for you to have carried in addition to your own grief like you said you're not just one of the siblings but you're the you're the older sibling you're the mom of the siblings and my heart goes out to you for that effort in trying to Keep everyone afloat while still facing your own grief. Um, you've got these two little boys at home. You're still really young. It's not like you're old and wise and, and seasoned and know how to just take life by the horns as if we ever do at any age. Um, what Can you tell us a little bit, What? how did you get through that first little while? Were there? You mentioned that friend that helped. You mentioned a sense of peace your family experienced. Any insight as to what maybe carried you through that first little while that did help or maybe didn't help looking back in that immediate aftermath for you and your siblings? Yeah, I think with suicide, there is that added shame that whether you carry that mindfully and try to cast it off or whether you're buried under it, um, that that's a hard piece of grieving someone to suicide. And I think even though we felt some of that as a family, my parents, I appreciate that they were very intentional in that they wanted to go through this together, that they were going to grieve and that they gave permission for us as a family to grieve how we needed to grieve. And we had a lot of community support. I, my community, for me personally, I felt supported and was just taken by surprise (laughs) that people would reach out and just be generous in trying to help. And something as simple as a good friend of mine brought me some wheatgrass shots because I was trying to be healthy and I definitely couldn't eat for about a week. I was just completely sick to my stomach and 
had no interest in food, but that was just such a kind gesture of something so personal that she went out of her way to think of just a tiny thing that she could do for me. And I appreciated all of those efforts. His funeral was very well attended. It was in a LDS chapel and almost the entire gym was filled up as well. And he was, he was well loved and our family was well supported. And that meant a lot. My mom made a comment that if there's anything that you need, now is the time to ask because it just felt like the windows of heaven were open. We couldn't get our brother back. We couldn't get our son or my sister-in-law's husband wasn't coming back. But any little thing that we needed, it just felt like it was gifted to us in that time. Oh my gosh, Amberly, we're all just sitting here crying. I think we're going to take another break and come back. This is so beautiful, and I am so grateful to hear how you and your family were loved and supported. I, My heart just aches for you, your siblings, your parents, your kids and your nieces and nephews. Of course, your cute nephew who never even got to meet his father and your sister-in-law. Let's take a break. We're all going to catch our breath. And then I would love for you to share with us what you've learned since. It's been over a decade. You're one of the most resilient, compassionate people I know. I'd love for you to teach us what that's looked like as you've learned and gained and grown in that compassion and resilience. We'll be right back. Amberly, thank you for sharing so much of your heart and your story and this heartbreaking story. We would love if you would share with us what what resilience looks like to you, what that compassion you received has meant to you in the more than decade, 10 years that have passed since you lost your brother. And I know this isn't your nephew's story, but we'd love to know how Sweet Little Boy is doing, if you'll give us even just a, a small update there with, of course, not, you know, without stepping into any personal space, but just... Do you still have connection with the family, it sounds like, with her, with your sister-in-law and your nephew? And what does that look like now after a decade? I cannot sing my sister-in-law's praises enough. She is an amazing woman, an amazing mother, and I just appreciate and admire her so much. My nephew is amazing. He is doing well. She homeschools him, and he is such a delightful, polite, bright young man that he doesn't not have his struggles. I don't want to minimize that they that they have their journeys that I, I what I do appreciate is the way they move through that and I admire them and appreciate them. <laughs> my third son, Tevin, is about the same age as my nephew and they have a great relationship and I, I'm so grateful for the effort that my sister-in-law and mom have made to have a close relationship. And it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been with us without its ups and downs, but they have both been such an example to me of understanding and compassion with each other and just I mean there's so many opportunities to blame or let hurt come in and overshadow the opportunity to have that connection and they've both worked hard to not let that be the case and I appreciate that because I appreciate the relationship that I have with my sister-in-law. She's a strength to me and an example to me. Um, sorry. You're fine. <laughs> I love that. I love hearing that there's still a relationship. I'll admit that's something mm-hmm. that resonates in my mind because I lost my father as a child and I feel like my mom and my father's siblings 
you know, put in that effort for us to know our cousins, to know my grandfather, to know our aunts and uncles. And still, still to this day, we're, we're close with that side of the family that very easily could have just not been very involved with our lives. I appreciate my aunts and my uncle who put forth the effort to keep us a part of their lives. I see it very differently now as an adult and especially as a widow, I see the effort that maybe as a child I took for granted. So I appreciate you sharing your insight that it's taken effort by both your mom and your brother's widow to make that relationship maintainable and that they could easily both of them say this just hurts too much or there's too many emotions involved and it probably would have been a lot easier to just walk away. But I'm learning from what you're telling me. You've learned from them and I appreciate that that insight. So tell us a little more insight because you've got personal experience, you've got professional training, and you've got experience as a, a counselor and a therapist in a you know, in, in sessions with people. So I'm sure your uh, personal experience makes you, adds to what you have to offer your clients as a therapist. But I would also imagine that your therapy training and experience adds to how you've experienced all of this personally. So what can you share with us about resilience, about compassion, and about what we always, the moving forward, not moving on, not getting over it, but this moving <laughs> forward that we all seek in a healthy, beautiful way? Yes, I like that moving forward. I think that I have learned a lot about grief and I've come to be able to recognize grief for what it is. How grief shows up for me initially is just anger. (laughs) I would get mad at Josh, my husband, and blame him for not being supportive and recognize like, oh, actually he's being really supportive. What I'm feeling right now is grief. And it would show up as overwhelm. I definitely, those first few weeks, I would get really overwhelmed trying to leave the house or cleaning my bathrooms was the last thing on my list. But I was supported in that, both by my husband. He was very understanding and worked to be able to hear what I needed in that grief as I figured out what this overwhelming feeling was and what I even needed in it. And I appreciate the patience he had with me through that. Now I feel that feeling come up and I can recognize it as grief and I can ask for what I need a little bit easier. And that's been a a journey. And I do think that it's important to recognize grief as grief because otherwise I do think we go around blaming either ourselves for being inadequate or other people for not meeting our needs. And that's been really empowering to recognize, okay, this is grief and it hurts. It sucks. And this is what I need in it. And some days I just need to slow down. Some days I need to ask for help, but mostly I just need to give myself permission to feel it. How many times have we tried to learn that? (laughs) I'm like, wait, stop for a second. I can't write fast enough. You're teaching me so many things. To give yourself permission, but to be able to recognize the anger is actually grief. The overwhelm is actually grief. The frustration, the, you know, fill in the blank emotion. To recognize it as being actually grief and then let yourself feel it yeah and try to identify what you need to get through it. That's so important. So that was one of my biggest takeaways from losing John and I had a friend who said you're not you're not giving yourself permission to feel this and you're never going to heal grief demands to be paid its price and its price is Mm -hmm. feeling the depths of the loss and so I started just giving myself the ability to stop and take a breath and ask myself, where in my body, where do I feel this? What am I feeling right now? What does that feel like for me? And to just breathe and give it room. And the more room you give it and the more you allow yourself to actually feel the pain inside your body, it will move and it'll shift and it'll leave. And and so I love that you say that because really permission to feel And to truly feel those feelings is really the only way we ever move through grief. Yes, I agree. And I think the other thing that I guess has really contributed to resilience 
is just giving up that need to make sense of it. And I think of it as sitting in the judgment seat. <laughs> like There is a judgment seat. I feel confident in that, but it is 100% not me in that seat. And <laughs> Thank <heavens>. knowing that, <laughs> yes, knowing that I can just love my brother. It took me quite a few years to really be able to easily feel good memories again. And I cherish those now, and I do have those. But it was hard for a while to just be able to remember the good things because there was a lot of hard surrounding his death. And I think that I shut it down a little bit because I didn't want, I didn't want people to think that I just remembered only the good because then I felt like it diminished. Like, I don't want to glorify suicide. I don't want anyone to think that this is an okay option and that their family will be okay after but I also don't want to tarnish my brother's memory and have people judge him or think harshly of him because of his death. And so that's kind of a tough spot to be able to honor him and love him. Well, that's kind of a tough spot because, I mean, I'm sure there were moments in your anger where you were judging or you felt terrible. You were like, I'm angry at you for this because it leaves so much pain. And I think that those are really normal feelings to have. I mean, you can you can disagree with me. You can tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, no. And I think even just, uh, Especially, just a lot of sorrow, like there was other options. Didn't you know there's other options? And just a lot of regret, I think, that I couldn't have told him that in time, you know. And a lot of concern of if I'm, if, Someone looks at me and thinks, oh, she's fine, um, or looks at his widow and thinks, oh, she's fine, then maybe if I made this choice, like they're over-exaggerating the consequences. And it's like, no, there are other options. Please consider other options if you feel like you're in that really stuck, dark place. And at the same time, even though that whole thing is not okay, I I am okay, and I am grateful for that. And that's been an important piece to give myself permission to be okay and that I'm responsible for my life moving forward. I'm not responsible for being the evidence in his case, let alone the judge. That that is really powerful. You know, this was, again, a decade ago, and a lot of – there used to be a, a lot of connotations that what suicide meant, especially if you were a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there was talks about it, and some of those made it sound like, it, you know, it was a level of a crime in itself, you know? Right. Right. And yeah, um, my, to that point, my dad, when he, his first question was, like, it, does this mean he's damned. Like, what does this mean for his soul? And thank goodness, um, we had very good leaders. Right. It adds a layer of complication to the whole mess, right? It's hard Mm -hmm. enough on its own, but then you have this added layer of that this could potentially mean a damnation of eternity for somebody who, who made that option. And I personally don't feel that way. The church has since come out and and leadership has come out and had different conversations about it, which I definitely appreciate. I think that the complication with suicide is, is that no one is in that heart or mind of that person. So none of us can ever truly know the depths of pain that they were in and the moment that was created for that moment to happen. I think a lot of the times it's less planned. It's usually more sometimes uh, a reactionary moment, an impulse con- control issue almost. And, and sometimes it's it's well thought out and um, and well planned. And I just think that we can't possibly understand what goes into that process. We've had a guest on our show, a young man who talked about the voices in his head, the the constant um, barrage of negative self-talk 
that was really just so painful. And um, he attempted, but he lived through it. And he's so grateful, but he still talks about, you know, his life is not, it's not like that happened. And then he was like cured of, of that moment. But he has put into place some strategies to help change that narrative, change the self-talk. And I'm grateful that you brought up the fact that, you know, at first nobody wanted to talk about it and that there was a lot of shame and probably a bit of denial around being able to be forthcoming about this. But I think it's really important that we have these conversations because there's a lot of people suffering, particularly now with COVID having happened. The state of our world is so chaotic there's so much unrest in so many places, and it's causing global unrest in each of our soul. I mean, look at us with Ukraine. Um, I saw a post on my Facebook wall uh, last week sometime where some, somebody said, I would have never thought it would have taken uh, Americans to be Ukra- Ukrainians before we could be united again. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, wow, um, that's true. We've all become just so touched by what's going on in that part of the country that we're finally uniting over that. And anyway, going back to these thoughts on what that means in denial and shame and and those kind of things, we, we have to have the conversation. We have to have these conversations. We have to talk about these things because we need to give permission to people to be able to grieve and to be able to own the space that maybe it wasn't cancer it wasn't a car accident that this person made this choice for whatever reason and like Amberly's sister-in-law said it we don't need to waste the time, time and energy feeling like we have to explain that Amberly, i love what you just said also about this is not okay it, it's not okay death is not okay suicide is not okay we certainly don't want to minimize that and yet i can as a survivor be okay and i hear two sides of that coin and what you're saying the one that we would never want someone to think, okay, if you die, we're just going to be fine because we've proven that we're fine. So we don't need you or you don't matter or it wouldn't matter if you were gone because, of course, that's not true. But also for anybody listening that knows someone who's gone through something difficult in their lives and they seem to be doing fine and they're doing well, they've moved forward, they've found strength and resilience. As beautiful as that strength and resilience is, please don't ever let that diminish the level of the battle to get to that strength and that resilience. And don't look at people and think, oh, they're fine. It must not have been that hard or it must not have hurt that much. I think there are people who are doing well. They're moving forward beautifully. They've got beautiful lives of their own. And that hurt is still there. And the level of difficulty is still there. And we don't need to look at someone as having moved forward and minimize what they've gone through, what they've been through. So if you know someone that's really struggled with whatever they've struggled with, And today they seem to be doing fine and beautifully and optimistically well. Great. Maybe also every once in a while just reach out and say, hey, I know this is hard for you. I know your strength is hard. I know your optimism is hard. I know know the fact that you're doing well shows that you're fighting hard, not that it's just easy. And I think sometimes, particularly in our culture and our environment, we're optimistic. We want to look for the sunny side of life. And we sometimes forget that the sunny side sometimes comes with massive battles And let's celebrate both. Let's celebrate the sunshine, but let's celebrate the fact that there's a lot of people really fighting to get to that sun. So thank you, Amberly, for reminding us of that. Thank you. So Amberly, what does resilience mean to you? I love that word, resilience. Um, I think that for me, resilience means getting up and doing your best each day. And I love self-compassion self-compassion I could talk about self-compassion all day every day because I think that self-compassion is what allows resilience we have to give ourselves permission to have a down day sometimes and that might be our best that day and maybe getting up means staying in our pajamas all day and giving ourselves permission to read or journal Or maybe self-compassion means, okay, it's time to stick to our schedule. And so we get up at 6 o'clock and we exercise and we eat really healthy. And maybe that's what self-compassion looks like one day. 
self-compassion is not self-indulgence, but self-compassion is honoring our needs. And I think that that's what brings resilience. I want another T-shirt, Michelle. I know. Self-compassion is what allows resilience. Amberly, I love that. And it's not self-indulgence, and it can look different from day to day. I love that. I I wrote it down. I underlined it twice. Self-compassion <laughs> is what allows resilience. Amberly, thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart, your story, your family's story. We send all of our love and prayers and faith and hope with your sweet sister-in-law and her little boy. It makes me cry just thinking about him. To think that now he's going to be 11 this year and and I'm glad they're doing well and I'm also not naive to the fact that it's a fight to be doing well. So God bless them and you and your family and thank you for listening. Joining us uh, today to all of our listeners, thanks for taking this journey with us with Amberly and her family. We would love to hear from you. If you are listening and you yourself have been through something that has helped you learn compassion and resilience or if you know someone that you have learned that from, after what they've been through, please contact us. Let us know. Let us share your story with our listeners. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com, or you can find us on social media on both Facebook and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. We'd love to learn and hear from you. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.